This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button portion stops here. Plug the radio in. Welcome to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program, where we explain the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hello, I'm Kirk Hastings. And we are sponsored in part by Grace Community Church of Waterford Works, New Jersey. You can check us out on our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. And Kirk, we're going to be talking today more about why do people believe what they believe. Okay. So this, is, this has been a great part of our series on critical thinking skills, where we've talked about logical thinking and how we need to apply that to come up with correct conclusions. So we'll be looking at some of the reasons why people believe what they believe. Well, Kirk, I've got a couple of news items that came across the desk here. This one is in regards to a website called familyfacts.org. This looks like a great resource for people that are interested in some of the sociology things that are going on in the United States. One of the points they bring out is that youth who remain abstinent do better academically and are more likely to attend and graduate from college than sexually active teens. Well, that's so, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is. It uh, fits in with the Christian worldview. If you believe the Bible, if you adopt Christian norms and values in your life, you wind up living a better life. So some of these statistics that are on this website show how important stable family relationships are to American civil society. Bringing Christian ideas into your life helps society by producing more freedom, more opportunity, more prosperity, and civil society just flourishes. One of the other things they mention is couples who were married have a higher average household income, more assets, and better health than many of their single or cohabitating counterparts. Then conversely, it says families that are headed by unmarried females make up more than half of all families living in poverty. And paychecks are not the only reason two parents are better. It says research shows that improvements in child well-being that are associated with marriage persist even after adjusting for differences in family income. So it's not enough just to say that well, if they're making more money, then they're more likely to marry. That's not the case. It turns out that if you adjust for family income, there's still a definite advantage for married couples and for their children. So that's a great website. We'll have to keep an eye on that and see what new information comes in on that. That's familyfacts.org. Yeah, that's. Uh, I see here it's uh, sponsored by the Heritage Foundation. Yes, a uh, conservative think tank. Yeah. So, 
Okay. Then there was another item that came from Apologetics Resource Center, and this is about global warming. Why do we like to talk about global warming? Well, for one thing, because it shows how science can be hijacked, how science can be taken captive by political ideologies. Yes, we see a lot of that today. Yep, and this is one of the ways that we highlight that. This is a story that you won't find in the liberal media. It's that an independent investigation of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is known as the IPCC, the lead group determining international policies on global warming. So they're being investigated, and it, they called this investigation group called for fundamental reforms. It says... The probe of the IPCC was conducted by the Inter-Academic Council, a consortium of national scientific academics. The probe was triggered after disclosure of several errors in the IPCC's 2007 Climate Science Report. The 2007 report concluded that climate change, or global warming, is unequivocal, quote, and, quote, very likely caused by human activity. Critics of the IPCC said the findings of the investigation underscored problems with the way the IPCC assesses climate science and how they ignored numerous minority science reports disagreeing with the IPCC's conclusions. And if you remember, Kirk, there was a, a big hullabaloo over the exposed emails that showed how the people in the IPCC were conspiring to fire science journalists who reported contrary evidence to their views. I remember that. Yeah. So this report goes on to say the Inter-Academy Council found that the 2007 IPCC report did not consistently reflect uncertainty in some aspects of climate change, leading to unnecessary errors. The Council also faulted the IPCC for using research data that had not undergone the normal scientific process of peer review. They also failed to adequately reflect properly documented views of scientists who disagreed with their consensus conclusions. And as we've pointed out on previous shows, since this time, since the 2007 report, it has been shown conclusively that the heating of the earth, the changes in temperature is caused by the changes in albedo or the reflectiveness of the earth depending on its changing level of cloud cover and that depends on output of the magnetic field of the sun so as solar activity increases albedo decreases and the earth heats up and when that cycles back down again every 11 to 15 years then the earth cools off again. Hmm. But we're stuck with a lot of the political shenanigans by leftists who have adopted this particular understanding of human-caused global warming and want to burden us with taxes and want to shut down industry, which they think is going to raise sea levels around the world here in 100 years or so. And they want everybody to trade their cars in for bicycles. Yes, they do. <laughs> yep. 
one of the things even in our little town here in southern New Jersey, they established a green commission, which its goal is to reduce carbon output to 80%, to reduce it by 80% rather, of 2008 levels. Hmm. Can you imagine? That's in, within 50 years they want to do that. Right. 80% less. Good Incredible. luck. Incredible. Yeah, good luck. And the first yeah, we, volcano we, that blows up is going to fell that all up because <laughs> it's going to put all that CO2 back into the air again and more probably. That's right. That's right. So, okay, so science can be hijacked by political concerns. That's why you always have to be skeptical when you read something scientific that seems to fit with a, a certain political view. Yeah. Always be open-minded. And that's part of what the critical thinking skills that we've been talking about the last several weeks are all about. Right. Well, one other item that I ran across, I was listening to a podcast by theologian Norman Geisler. I'm sure you know who he is, Kirk. Oh, yeah. This was really interesting. He mentioned something that I wasn't aware of before, that in one of Paul's letters, he quotes from one of the Gospels. And this is in 1 Timothy 5.18. He quotes, and he says that Scripture says a worker is worth his wages. Well, guess where that comes from? I kind of, when I've run across that, I've always thought, okay, that's someplace in the Old Testament. No, it's actually from Matthew 10.10. A worker is worth his wages. That's a direct quote. Right. So since we know that 1 Timothy was written around 64 A.D., uh, that puts the book of Matthew somewhere around 60 A.D., which means that since it appears that Matthew used portions of Mark in his writing of Matthew, that puts the Gospel of Mark no later than around 55 A.D. So, right. something to be said for the early appearance of the Gospels. All right, well, I guess that's it for news items. There were a couple of emails that we responded to over the past week, and I thought I'd share that with some of our listeners. We received another email from Felipe. I don't know if you remember this one. A couple of weeks ago, Kirk, he was talking about that we had claimed that Contrary to what was said, species are not created by suddenly changing from one species to another. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember Philippe. I've exchanged a couple emails with him myself. So we, um, we had to say, we had to first point out, well, he got us wrong. We didn't say that. Uh, we corrected him on that. We explained what we did believe about how microevolution, small adaptive changes, can't facilitate the larger changes that are necessary from one type of organism changing into another type of organism. So he responds and says, thank you for responding. What do you mean by adding information? Because we mentioned that in order to get a different type of animal, you have to have more information. You have to, if you're creating a more complex species, you have to have more information. And he says, what do you mean by adding information? I do not remember reading this in the books I read about evolution. My understanding is that species have the same genetic material 
but gene expression is different enough that they are different. So he seems a little confused in what his own, well, at least what evolutionary belief is about these kind of adaptive changes. I, I answered him, Felipe, I'm talking about adding genetic information. The DNA code that is needed to create the proteins that are needed to create the molecular machines that create new functions or new metabolic pathways. It's not surprising that you have not read about it since it would make believing in evolution much harder. So there's not too many pro-evolutionary texts that are going to talk about the need for new information. Right. So, so I suggested reading Signature in the Cell by Dr. Stephen Meyer. Then I continued on, different species are different simply because they have different genes. Now, within a gene pool, such as the dog kind, which would include wolves and dogs and foxes, that sort of thing, you can have different species that share the same genes and some are turned on in, say, a wolf, but they're turned off in, say, a fox. But they do not have the same genes as a completely different kind of animal like a mouse. Right. Or so a whale I, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So it was kind of an odd question. I hadn't run into anybody who didn't really understand that, that you do have to have completely different genes to have a completely different type of animal. Right. So maybe, I don't know if it's just we're misunderstanding what he's getting at. But this did point out a news item that came out a couple of weeks ago, and we didn't really talk about it on the show it's that scientists have discovered that the echolocation mechanisms that are used by porpoises and bats, guess what? They have the same genes. Now, Isn't that interesting? It, yeah, it's supposed to mean if you have the same genes, it means you pass them on or you both receive them from a common ancestor. But there isn't any kind of tree of life that would connect porpoises and bats in, as any kind of close relatives. Right. So, this so how did they both end a, up with the same gene? Yeah, exactly. This is, comes from a study that was published in Current Biology, and the story about it says, quote, that there were identical gene changes. So they wound up with identical genetic changes. The discoverers of this were just completely flabbergasted by this. How is it possible? Well, maybe it's possible because they had the same engineer, the same creator, uh -huh. the same provider for information. Sure. Makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, pretty straightforward, I would say. All right, let's do one more. We have a guest in the wings, so we don't want to keep them waiting too long, but I think we can do one more item here. This is a letter from Patrick. Patrick wrote such a long letter that we can't read it, but I'll read just sections of it. Did he send you this on St. Patrick's Day? I don't know. He didn't, unfortunately. Well, that, that would have been nice. a good coincidence. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, he writes about how frustrated he is because of our mischaracterization of evolution. So he says, quote, I can't speak to the specifics of the lecture that Keith attended. Well, I think he made a mistake here. 
I don't think he's talking about any lecture that I attended. I think this is he's talking about the show we did where you attended a lecture from someone from the University of Pennsylvania. Yes, in Ocean City just a couple of weeks ago. He's probably referring to that. Yeah, the, didn't you get the impression? Because the quotation that he has there didn't sound like anything I said. Okay. So, but anyways, he says that I can't, I can't speak to the specifics of the lecture that Keith attended because I wasn't there, but he sarcastically remarked upon how science is a, quote, solid philosophy to base your beliefs about the human race on. Okay, well, that really doesn't sound like anything I would say, but... Um, well, that sounds like he could be referring to when I made the point that the woman that was giving the lecture about human evolution really didn't seem to be sure of much of anything. Right. She and kept you, saying, this is what we think, but we're not sure, and we don't know, and maybe, and, right. you know, I and pointed for, that out, so now, maybe that's what he's referring to. Later. Right. Yep. And he says, because it changes sometimes spectacularly, well, well, that is why it is a solid philosophy. That's what makes the scientific method in general and evolutionary theory in particular such a powerful lens through which to view the world and all the life in it. As our body of evidence grows expands and dare I say evolves so too does our model for understanding it well actually that's just our point of disagreement what we're saying is that as the evidence mounts up and points towards intelligent design the atheists refuse to accept the new information they cling to the old paradigms and reject that science could actually change in this way right Some will seem to find a way to fit the idea of evolution into whatever kind of evidence comes along. That's right. Which basically squeeze it in. Yeah, and and basically they're making um, the theory of evolution. They're making it impossible to falsify it in any way. Which really is one of the conditions of a scientific theory is there has to be a way to falsify it, or it's not considered a legitimate theory. Yep. But evolution can be stretched to fit almost anything. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Any Anything that comes along, well, evolution did it that way. Right. And if it comes exactly the opposite, then evolution did it that way. Just like the porpoises and bats. If you have the same genetic DNA sequences, then you are closely related. Well, except when you're not closely related, and then it's just a coincidence. <laughs> right. And they say, we do the same thing with God. We just say, you know, well, God did it that way. And we That's fit right. anything into that. Which we don't. We, we say God did it that way when the evidence shows God did it that way. Right. Well, let's see. He gets on this concept of micro and macro evolution, and he says that he, doesn't, he doesn't think that's a valid distinction. So then he gives an analogy. There's a lot of scientists that would disagree with him on that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can look it up. On the internet, too, micro and macro evolution are completely legitimate concepts. Sure. But he says, he gives the analogy of it's like rainstorms versus a smattering of raindrops. Okay. Well, I thought he was saying that there was no distinction. Can't you distinguish between a rainstorm and a smattering of raindrops? I mean, if I had a theory that my newspaper was washed away yesterday, what would be the most likely cause? Would a smattering of raindrops have washed my newspaper away? Or would it have actually been a rainstorm? Right. So...
So there is a distinction to be made. Why can't we make it about microevolution and macroevolution? Right. And he calls it this his theory the microprecipitation versus macroprecipitation. Well, that's not really what it's like. <laughs> it's not microevolution and then macroevolution is just more of microevolution. No, it isn't. If you want to give an analogy, it's like micro decay leads to macro complexity. Uh, no, I don't think it does. Or micro sickness leads to macro health. Now, don't think it does. No. Or how about this? This is what our politicians have been trying to do. Micro spending leads to macro wealth. Yeah, right. No. <laughs> Actually, it doesn't. Nope, we're finding that out right now, too. <laughs> yes, we are. So a better analysis or a better analogy instead of rainstorms would be, can you change a Model T by shooting bullets at it? Well, I For guess the better, you, you mean. could. Yeah, you could, you could maybe change a, a Model T. You might be able to change it into a convertible Model T. <laughs> you know, just shoot it in just the right way and you shoot the, the top off. Now you right. got a convertible. <laughs> you know, or how about a three wheel Model T? Yeah. Yeah, that would that. work real well, wouldn't it? Right. But you think you can get a 747 <laughs> out of it by shooting bullets at a, a Model T? That not, would be an example of macroevolution. Not too likely. Not too likely. <laughs> so here's my response. I say, Patrick, though we disagree, thanks for taking the time to write and trying to straighten me out. I am curious, <laughs> though, if I understand you correctly, you claim that micro-macro evolution distinction is a false dichotomy. But then to illustrate this, you give me a real dichotomy, the difference between small rainstorms and large rainstorms. Right. Do do hurricanes fit in here somewhere, or are they right out? Just kidding. <laughs> Let me help you with your analogy. Let's say there's a small group of scientists who live where there are no tornadoes, and the tornadoites want to convince them that the tornadoes have happened in the past. Simply pointing to a bunch of rainstorms and saying, it's like this, only bigger, is hardly convincing. Just in case you're one wondering, I actually do believe in tornadoes. Regards, Keith. <laughs> All right, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. Kirk, why don't you introduce our, our guest today? Yes, we have a guest in the studio today, Pastor Chris Grigas from, coincidentally enough, Linwood Community Church in Linwood, New Jersey, which is where I happen to go every Sunday. Cool. And he's here to give us a little information about his ministry there and about the church. So I'll let him speak. That's great. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks, Keith and Kirk, for uh, letting me be on and just uh, kind of share a little bit about Linwood Community Church. We're, uh, we've been around for over 75 years, and uh, we're right on Shore Road, right in the middle of Linwood. And um, I'm excited to be there. I'm the interim pastor there. I was called last... Uh, last September uh, to help the uh, the leadership and, and the people find another pastor. So that's kind of what I've been doing the last six months, trying to be faithful to God's Word on Sunday and uh, try to lead the staff and help out a little bit there. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful experience. Yes, and we should just mention that uh, Chris was just renewed for another six months the other day. 
So Wonderful. He's, he's doing a good job. That's great. And we're also considering him as one of the candidates for the permanent pastor as well. Terrific. Okay, well, uh, about some of the ministries of the church. Uh, do you want to, like, describe some of the things that are going on, like the youth group and uh, any weekly sure. type activities? Well, we have uh, we have two services, Kirk, on, on Sunday at 8.30, and then we have one at 11 o'clock, and then we have 9.45 Sunday school kind of squeezed in between. Um, and we got a pretty full schedule all week. Wednesday night is a big week, uh, big time for us. We have um, senior high youth group. We have um, also an Olympian program that's four years old through six grades, and that begins at six fifteen and goes till about eight o'clock. So certainly those in the Linwood area or EHT or wherever else, if you're looking for a ministry for your younger kids, that's a great ministry. We have about eighty kids or so on a, on a Wednesday night, and then. Our junior high, our senior high program has about 50 kids, and Dave and Patty Hanson are, are leading that and uh, just doing a great job with that. So They are doing a really good job with the youth group. It's really uh, grown in the year or two that Dave and Patty have been in charge of it. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's exciting. I, I have two of my boys. Uh, they have also on Thursday night, they have the junior high program, which is a little bit smaller, but they're trying to grow that, and that's about the same time. We have a nice gym there so that the kids get a chance to play ball and just kind of hang out and uh, so you know that's kind of kind of our week there's a lot of ministries that we're involved with you know we're involved with the Atlantic City Rescue Mission and uh, we've even got a sister church in Haiti that we just had a team come back from just visiting with them and so there's a lot happening at Linwood Community and the Lord's been blessing and uh, we're just uh, looking forward to what he's going to do in the future. Chris do you want to talk about the uh, Easter service that we're going to have coming up? Sure. Um, we are having Easter service on the 24th of April. It's late this year, and um, we usually uh, start off at 6.30 in the morning having an Easter sunrise service. Mm-hmm. And um, being Down at the end of Seaview Avenue, which is the side street where Linwood Community is located, there happens to be a little dock out there, and there's, uh, I don't know what... Uh, what waterway that is there i guess it's the one of the back bays back I there i think so yeah but uh i'm told uh, i've been to that a couple of times and we have a very nice uh, view of the sunrise over the casinos in atlantic city there there we go and we just hold a little uh, service there at sunrise and it's it's really a, a neat experience yeah it is i've never experienced it but i've been involved in other sunrise services and then we'll come back and we'll have some uh, breakfast together in our gym and uh and then we have Sunday school, and then we'll have our 11 o'clock service. So everybody is cordially invited. If you don't have a church home or you, you don't go to church much, but you'd love to join us in our Easter service, we'd love to have you. Wonderful. Sounds good. Pastor Grigas, let me ask you, you've got a large youth group and a large high school, Sunday school. Sure. Have you heard about the studies that are showing that so many young Christians, when they go away to college, wind up leaving the faith? Yes, yeah, I've read, I've read some things on that, and um, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon. I, I think, I think uh, more, more than not, the last twenty, thirty, forty years, you know, the discipleship in in most churches just hasn't been as strong. Uh, parents, mm-hmm. parents aren't getting it, and they're not handing it down to their kids. So, it doesn't surprise me, Keith, that they go off to college and they have some wise professor, uh, you know, shrewd professor that blows, you know puts uh, holes through some of their beliefs and they begin to they begin to say you know what I don't know if I believe what mom and dad believe and they haven't taken it as their own beliefs that's that's the bottom line do you have any projects or programs or anything that you're doing to try to avert that 
Well, certainly, um, we, you know, I, I do my best on, on uh, Sunday and, you know, on Wednesday night to try to, to try to train our people to know God's Word, you know, and to make it a practical part of their life, not just information. I, I mentioned today in our service that uh, D.L. Moody once said that the Scriptures were not given for our information but for our transformation. And I think sometimes we miss that. I think we read the Bible as a history book instead of a life-giving book from Almighty God. It's His words, and they're, they're powerful. And uh, we also, uh, a couple years ago, um, began in our Sunday school program to have a, have a program where you go, you know, from the beginning to, to, of the Bible stories and doctrines and all the rest and begin to build that into the kids' lives. So, you know, uh, if they begin in, 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 in kindergarten, for instance, by the time they're in sixth grade, they've gone through a just kind of a systematic way of understanding the Scripture. So I think that's a help. To be, mm-hmm. able to, to be able to get the kids just not just to know stories, but to understand what the stories are about, you know? Great. Well, we're going to be talking today about the reasons that people believe things, and I guess that dovetails right into this issue of why do our children not believe what it is that they've been taught. We started last week talking about some of this, and Pastor, if you'd like to join us in this conversation, we'd be happy to have you okay. for the rest of the show and Appreciate you can it. give us your feedback on some of the things we're going to be talking about today. It's really interesting that the past few weeks, uh, Pastor Chris has been doing a series of sermons about how to think in a Christian manner, which really does tie in quite a bit with what we've been talking about. Yeah, you know, why do some people think in a Christian manner, so to speak, and why do others not? Why do will others listen to a gospel presentation and say, hey, that's not for me, I'm not interested, and yet other people will hone in and say, wow, you know, that sounds true, that's for me. So we've been looking at a lot of these issues, and I guess we should just pick up where we left off. We talked last week about peer pressure, how, and that, of course, is probably a big influence on some of our youth, because at that age of life, peer pressure is very important. We talked about how people believe things that their peers believe, and they tend to disbelieve things that their peers disbelieve. So the next thing on our list is about psychological influences. So this is something that's often been accused, or rather Christians have often been accused of, you believe in Christianity because you've got psychological reasons. You know, it's... Freud said it's wish fulfillment, right? It's a, it's a crutch. They mm-hmm. need this because they lack something psychologically. Well, actually, you know, that can be turned around and used against those people because there have been studies that have shown that if you've had an abusive or an absent father, guess what? That kind of thing leaves deep scars Mm-hmm. And it can lead you not to want to have anything to do with a father figure. Right. So it turns out that maybe it's the other way around. Maybe people who have had problems can't seem to have a normal relationship that you might w- with a father really have problems with Christianity. There's a former atheist who's a research psychologist by the name of Paul Vitz who wrote a book called The Faith of the Fatherless. 
<laughs> which he basically took Freud's ideas and flipped it around and put it on the other foot. And turns out it fits the atheist's explanation for why they believe what they believe much better than it does for Christians. Mm -hmm. He looked at the past 400 years of prominent atheists and examined what kind of relationships they had with their fathers. And almost down to a man, they had some kind of problem, some absentee father or some abusive father. Whereas if you looked at the same time frame and you looked at prominent Christians, those who were promoting Christianity, you found just the opposite. They had very few instances of problems with a abusive or absent father. Hmm. Interesting. So, this is huge, Keith. Um, yeah. From a pastoral standpoint, I've I've been counseling people for about twenty five years, and this is a this is a huge issue. I mean, it really is. I mean, abuse and and the absentee fatherism, and you know, just uh, them being able to relate to a a God who is father. I mean, they just don't get the concept. Yeah, loving God can seem really strange when you've never really experienced that. All that you've experienced from your earthly father is hatred. That's right. That's right. There's a lot of there's a lot of bitterness there, and um, people cannot receive the grace of God with bitterness in their heart. The scriptures talk about that. So. It's, yep. it's interesting. Now, we don't want to fall into a fallacy. There's a, there's a philosophical, logical fallacy here called the genetic fallacy. We don't want to say that a person only believes in atheism because of the origin of that idea or that it came from the fact that they were abused. Right. You know, we don't want to, we're not making that claim. Right. No. But we do want to point out that if you're going to say that, oh, well, Christians only believe it because they have psychological needs, hey, you know what? The shoe actually fits better on your foot, pal. Yeah. So just because you're an atheist doesn't mean you had an abusive father, but it is certainly something to consider, and we do definitely know that psychological forces impact the kinds of things we believe, and we have to be aware of that. When you hear a, a good argument for something, you have to Try to set aside the psychology of your past and actually listen to the evidence. Yeah, and for a lot of people, that's not an easy thing to do. Well, especially uh, deep-rooted psychological problems. That's almost impossible for many people to set aside. And it just shows the, the tremendous evil that a father who is abusive can inflict on their children. It's It can be life-affecting. The rest of their life right. will always be affected by some of the things that happen. Yeah. Well, how about another reason for why people believe some of the things they do or don't believe some of the things they don't believe? Another reason is that people become vested in a belief. So what I mean by that is that maybe they early on believed it because of some evidence that they heard and accepted it for logical reasons, but they've now built maybe a career out of it based sure. on that belief. Uh -huh. yeah. maybe, maybe they became a Christian for, you know, not very good reasons, and they've been 
a well we'll say pastor and you know no reflection on on our pastor i'm just using this i want to use this kind of as a devil's advocate thing so let's say they're a pastor for 30 40 years and now they get a very strong argument against christianity what do you think is going to happen well they're kind of vested you know they're not likely to really seriously look at that argument so we have to we have to be careful ourselves that we're not looking at real arguments and just shoving them aside because we're vested right i think that happens with a lot of scientists today too that you know the prevailing viewpoint in the scientific community quote unquote is darwinism so i would imagine there's quite a few scientists out there that probably have some doubts about at least some aspects of evolution but they're probably uh afraid to verbalize those because they're afraid that you know all their colleagues will look at them like well what's the matter with you type of thing. well that that brings in a different a different reason you know being f- afraid of being accosted by your colleagues but let's well that's a little you know, peer pressure too right adults but, can have peer pressure too but just the fact that they are vested you know that they've right. been a biology professor for 20 years right you know and if you've been teaching Darwinism for each of those 20 years, you know, and you get converted over the summer, what are you going to do in the fall? Just come in and teach it again like nothing happened? Or are you going to, you know, turn around and say, well, you know, I'm not sure that this stuff is true after all. Yeah, they're they're really unlikely to change their mind, especially, you know, if during a lecture a Christian student stands up and says, hey, you've got it wrong here's what's really going on. Right, yeah. Um, You know, somebody who's not vested might be a little more open-minded, but somebody who's vested 20, 30 years in what they're doing, you know, you're going to be a little little more closed-minded, let's put it that way. Right. That's why it's so amazing the transition that the scientist Dean Kenyon, are you familiar with Dean Kenyon? Yes, I am. Yeah, he w- was a brilliant expert in the origin of life, and he wrote the textbook that was used for most of the teaching on origin of life, and yet a student was able to bring up the clear discrepancies that just it didn't make sense, and he... Even though he was vested, I mean, you're not much more vested than you wrote the textbook that every other professor is using around the university systems. Right. And yet he was willing to change. Wow. That took a lot of courage on his part just to do that. Absolutely. Okay. So that's, uh, so vesting is another reason why people believe things and are unlikely to change their minds. How about that, pride? Yeah, that I was going to say that leads right into the next one. Yeah. Why, yep. you know, after telling people for 20 years you believe in something, um, it's a little bit of an ego buster to suddenly have to come back and say, well, I think I was wrong for 20 years. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They're going to be, you know, embarrassed, right? Sure. You know, and then they have to be subjected to publicly being corrected yeah you know uh hey you know it's not not a pleasant thing so many times uh, people just won't won't accept 
that they've been wrong. You know, I, it reminds me, I don't know, Kirk or Pastor Chris, if you remember a case back from the 50s, I'm sure none of you are old enough to remember this. I'm merely saying that you might have heard about the news accounts. Well, and you might know about it because it was made into a movie called The Fugitive. Yep. You remember The Fugitive? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Well, that was actually a true case. Really? Yeah, this was a I case. I go far enough back to remember the TV series. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And the TV series was, what, in the 60s, right? Yep. So this was about a case that happened in the late 40s, early 50s. It was a physician in Chicago by the name of Shepard. Mm -hmm. And he went to sleep. His wife went to sleep upstairs. He went to sleep downstairs. His wife was brutally murdered during the night. Well, the evidence was kind of, you know, mixed. Some of the evidence pointed to him. Some of it pointed away from him. But then it came to light that Dr. Shepard had been having an affair. Well, guess what happens to you if you're having an affair and it's 1950? Uh-huh. I can imagine. Yep. The evidence was, the evidence that would have cleared him was hidden from the jury. His own defense attorney didn't believe that he was innocent and didn't vigorously defend him. The prosecutors made hay with the evidence that seemed to indict him, and the jury went along. So he went to prison. I didn't write down in my notes how long he was there, but it was a long time. It was something like 14 years before finally, after much work by another lawyer who was able to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was, in fact, innocent. There was actual blood from the murderer on the scene that the, the wife in her struggles to get away from while she was being beaten to death uh, had bitten his arm and her, her front teeth had actually been broken out we don't need to get into the gruesome details, but anyways, she bit him hard enough that he bled, and, the, and his blood was at the crime scene. Wow. So he finally was released. It wasn't soon enough to have protected another person who was, had been killed later by this same murderer. Huh. But when the jurors, here's the point, this idea about fear of embarrassment and not wanting to be publicly corrected and and the kind of psychological issues that somebody can have with new evidence facing them, many of the jurists refused to accept the new evidence. Really? Yeah. Wow. They, they contended that they made a correct decision and that Dr. Shepard really was guilty and that he should not have been released from prison. Huh. So, you know, it really does depend why you believe things, you know, it can, there's a lot to it. We really do have to try to set aside our own pride, our own fear of embarrassment. You know, if you've been an atheist for 20 years, if you've taught atheism and the evidence just shows you're wrong, you just have to try to set aside those things. Right. 
Yeah, it's interesting you bring that example up because I have that movie on DVD and I just watched it the other night. Oh, cool. <laughs> With Harrison Ford. It's a great yeah, movie. Yeah, doesn't he do a great job? Wonderful movie. It is. It's fabulous. Keeps you on the edge of your seat the whole time. Keith, I was thinking that you know, Christianity really is uh, is really as juxtaposed against pride in in all its all its ways. I mean, yeah. you know, when we realize Lucifer, uh, who was the angel uh, that fell and became Satan, he he was he was stuck in pride, and um, I think Christianity sometimes is rejected wholesalely by people. It's because we're not willing to be humble enough to admit, you know, that we've all fallen. I mean, we should be willing to do that the easiest in our society because of the grace of God in our lives, you know? So it's interesting, you know, we, we should never, we should never really allow pride to be a, a, a part of our life in a great way. Right, right. You yeah. Know? It can really affect you in ways you just can't calculate. Absolutely. That's really true because it, it just in, uh, admitting that you need a savior, you have to admit that there's something wrong with you in order to do that. That's right. And some people just can't do that no. or don't want to do it. Yeah, that's right. It takes humility, right? Yeah. You know, that's one of the evidences, I think, that uh, Jesus is God, is this idea of humility. Think about it. If God is supposed to be the summum bodum, right, the greatest good, he is virtuous in every area, okay? So that means he is the most loving being. Um, he is the most kind being. He's also the most just being. Yes. So he punishes evil, that's true. But isn't humility a virtue? Yes. We say it is. Yeah, we say we it is. To do okay. it. <laughs> so if humility right. is a virtue, doesn't that mean that God is the most humble being that there is? Yeah, yeah that would follow. It does. And what do you think we have an example of in Christ on the cross? That's right. Mm-hmm. But his humility. Philippians chapter 2. Absolutely. God, God humbled himself. Yes. God was willing to prove to us just how humble he truly is yes. by allowing himself to be spit upon, yes. to be mocked to take on our sins and to die for us. How incredibly humble he is. And do you know that that's one of the advantages that we have on this side of the cross that Adam and Eve did not have before the fall? Mm. They could never have understood how humble their creator was. Right. So we are better off because they only, they only saw him in the role of, of creator. They didn't see right. him in the role of a savior. No. And, and what would it have meant for God to say to Adam and Eve, I am a humble God? Yeah. They go, ho, 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 listen to him. He's so <laughs> humble. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what the scriptures say, Philippians chapter 2. He humbled himself and became obedient even to the death on the cross. Yes. So that's exactly right. I mean, it, and, you know, I, I try to tell people, you know, when they've got all these problems with Christianity and all the rest, I, I point them to Christ. You know, I may be a bad example of it, and hopefully I'm not, but Jesus Christ is perfect, and he's a loving Father, and he's a loving Savior, and, and we need to understand that, you know, it's, uh, he, he's the one we look at. He's the example. Absolutely. Know? 
Absolutely. And All everything right. that our own human fathers may have lacked, God doesn't lack any of those things, okay. any of yep. those good qualities. All right, let's do another reason why people believe things or don't believe things. How about the idea of moral refusal? All right, there's some moral reason that mm-hmm. they have. There's something that they're unwilling, maybe some behavior that they just don't want to change. Oh, sure. That's something another that biggie. Like what? That's another biggie. Yeah, I think so. I I think this actually has more of an effect than people would care to say. Yeah. I know for myself, when I was a young man in college, I got away, you know, from my point of view, I was getting out of the house. Ooh. You know, I was 16 years old, went off to college, and man, it was party time for me. <laughs> and, you know... Anytime you hear something that could change your life as much as, say, evidence that Christianity is true, immediately your mind is racing ahead and thinking, uh-oh, wow, that means I have to change. I don't like that. Right. I heard, a pre- I heard a preacher say a long time ago, he said, he's the Lord God, he doesn't change, and if he doesn't change, guess who has to? That's right. That's a good one. You know? And we know that. You know, even non-believers, they know this. Yeah. So, you know, maybe they try to pretend it's not affecting them, but in the back of their mind, they are doing the calculus. They are thinking about what they're going to have to give up. So, and, no, and this sure. may be, you know, we talked about why it is that kids who come from Christian homes go away to secular schools and decide to leave the faith, this actually can be one of the big reasons, this behavior issue. For many, okay, some of them, let's say it is that they hear arguments for atheism, and they get talked out of Christianity because they were never talked into Christianity. They were just told to have faith, they were just told to believe it, and when somebody comes up with a long, long list of arguments and evidence that shows that Christianity is just a made-up fairy tale, okay, maybe there are some who will purely intellectually say, okay, I'm, Christianity doesn't make sense, I'm going to reject it. But you know what a lot of it is? A lot of it is that call of sin, yeah. that you know they get involved in behaviors that they would be ashamed of. Yeah. They know their parents would be ashamed of what they're doing, and, you know, it's the behavior first, and then comes the belief. Yeah. Hmm. So they like what their new behavior, their new lifestyle is. They're, they realize that, you know, when they go back home, if they go back to Christianity, they're going to have to change, and they're unwilling to. So there's this concept of moral refusal where... You know, I'm just not going to give up my behavior. I'm not willing to call what I'm doing immoral. Yeah. Yep. Well, folks, you heard it first here that Keith was a party animal in college. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was. I partied Saturday night, and I would go to church Sunday morning. Here we go. I was on the pretend uh, bandwagon, but you know what? <laughs> I thought everybody else was pretending, too.
Yep. Because I, I thought that's what it meant to be a Christian. Yep. That you, you just pretended. I thought the pastor was the biggest pretender of all. Well, Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so he becomes. So it's really what we're talking about here today, and that is what we think, we live out. That's right. And that's why the concept of ideas is so important. Ideas change things, True. and they ch it changes us. So we need to take in good ideas, true ideas, listen to the truth, and reject the lies of the world and the deceits of the world. All right, Kirk, how about the next one? Maybe we can fit one more in here before we're the end of the show. Well, this kind of fits in, too. People that are misinformed about what Christianity is or isn't. Mm-hmm. Yep, or deceived, you know. Yeah, it's just they have deceived. bad information. Yep. yep. Right. And there's yeah. a lot of bad information floating around the media today, too. Absolutely. I mean, in fact, that was one of the big reasons why I was doing the party Saturday night and the church Sunday morning. I was misinformed. I liked Christianity. I thought it was really cool. I thought it was good. You know, it led to good things. They did a lot of good things, built hospitals, sent missionaries out, helped right. the poor. I thought it was great. I also liked partying. I liked girls. I liked alcohol. My big deception, my big misinformation is I believed that I thought no one could know whether God existed. Hmm. You know, I just reasoned that, well, we live in a physical universe. God's not physical. God's other. He's spiritual. He's kind of outside the universe. So there's no way that anyone who's inside the universe could ever have any access to God ever know that God really existed. Yeah. Okay, maybe somebody like Moses, you know, he got special revelation. Maybe then you could know. But the rest of us were just guessing, including, right. like I said, pastors and teachers and anybody who's promoting Christianity, they're just pretending that it's true. And that was all from this deception, this misinformation that you can't know God exists. Well, the truth is you can know God exists. You can know intellectually. You can know philosophically and logically that God really does exist. And we've done many of those topics on our show. Yeah. And again, we come back to Jesus Christ, who the New Testament says is the visible image of the invisible God. That's yep. how we can see what God is, by looking at Christ. Yep. The evidence of the scripture, the evidence of the resurrection. There are many, many reasons to know that God exists, that Christ rose from the dead, that Christianity is true. Yeah, we talk about those on this show every week. Well, Pastor Grigas, we're just wrapping up the show. I'd like to give you another chance to plug your church and give people information, maybe a phone number or an upcoming event. Sure, I appreciate it, and thanks once again for having me on. Uh, we, uh, I guess the big event coming up is just our Easter service in another month or so. And uh, our phone number is 609-927-2950 if you're interested in finding out anything more about our church. If you have some kids that wanna, you want to plug into some, some uh, opportunities to grow and, and be a part of a, of a church, we'd love to have them. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I would just say that everyone's cordially invited in the viewing area. If you don't have a church, we'd love you to come. We don't want you to leave your church to come to our church. But if you don't have one or you've not gone to one, we would love to have you. And, and once again, 830 First service, 11 o'clock, uh, the second service on Sunday. Well, thank you, Pastor 
Chris, for being a guest on the show. And Thank you. You've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. <laughs>